The reasons to treat yourself to a frozen drink from Mickey D's go on and on and on. It's more than a drink. It's a Mickey D's drink. Your new flavor craze is here. From sweet and fruity frozen Fanta Wild Cherry to the classic cool of a frozen Coca-Cola to the tasty and tart frozen Fanta Blue Raspberry. Get any size for $1.59. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. We could see that they really needed somewhere to, to gather as a local assembly, as a group, and be able to have functions and and just be able to be together as as believers. That, yeah, our first breaking of bread was sitting on logs in that little opening outside the front door of the, the old man's, the chief's hut. And it was just amazing. The best time of my life, the most amazing experience in my Christian experience was that moment. We sat under those trees and with those simple believers, trouble communicating, um, translating our prayers at the Lord's Supper. But incredible moment you try to impress their hearts that you don't need a building to remember the Lord some of them seem to have the idea they want to wait to join the fellowship until the building was put up and just, just appreciate the simplicity of this you know and that to me was the most precious moment those first couple of days that we just broke bread remember the Lord for the first time under the trees there it was just, just incredible Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. Hello. Hi there, Dan. How are, how you? are you? Yeah, real good, thank you. It's looking rather warm there compared to where we are. <laughs> yeah, certainly not needing a jumper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very pleased today to be speaking to Mike Chapman all the way from Koori, Eastern Australia. So, welcome, Mike. Thank you. Perhaps you could start by sharing with us a little bit about your family life. What was it like growing up? Whereabouts were you in Australia growing up? And what kind of Christian influence was there in the home? Okay, well, I guess I had a fairly unique upbringing in that we were a tribe more than a family. <laughs> well, we were 10 kids. So that made it a, quite a, an interesting experience, I suppose you'd say. And they meant we were kind of poor in many respects, but looking back on that, we didn't feel deprived at all. It was a great experience. We were taught, I suppose, to enjoy the, and appreciate the basics in life and the little things that were, I suppose, we so, so often take for granted. And so that was tremendous. You know, a, a big tub of ice cream and a big packet of hot chips was our treat for the week. And it's kind of one of those simple things that, yeah, you look forward to it. You enjoyed it. And we made our own toys and we were, it was just one of those experiences. We, and we had a lot of outdoor activity. And I, I suppose that's something that with dad as a timber cutter from a big part of his life, a real bushman, mum was a coping with home life. She's a, a little lady. He's a, a man over six foot and she was a lady just over five foot. So <laughs> we stood in contrast, but we're a great team and we really valued our parents. Yeah, a godly, godly parents that taught us the, the Bible 
and showed us tremendous example. Dad would travel miles into the bush and but would always be home for the, the spiritual side of life. That was to us as a family that a great example and God was always first. And that that was just something that was a set standard in, in the home. The Bible reading at night after the meal and the prayers and mum would always make sure we had a few verses read to us before we scooted out the door for school. No matter how busy we were, we got the daily calendar or something. And looking back, you can see the effect of that on us in our life. Hey, it just had that uh, influence in the way you thought, the way you acted. You, you learnt to appreciate God in your daily experiences, I suppose, you know. So we were born uh, sort of about three, three, four hours inland off the coast. We lived um, probably in the south end of Queensland, so in the middle of Australia, inland a bit. I spent my first seven years there. I was the tail end of the family of the, the third youngest. So that's, I got all the harassment from the older, older ones, but. All the army downs? Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah. And I was a smaller guy, so I got most of those. So <laughs> I, I never outgrew the other guys. So that was, that was all good. Yeah. And then we moved down to this coastal part because for various reasons, the little assembly, one of the other families had a health issues with one of the daughters. They had to move. And dad with his concern, dad and mum with their concern with the fellowship that we could receive and, and whatever, we, we ended up moving down to be close to the, the more Christians. So you don't need many friends when you've got nine brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, we sort of had a cricket team or a football team, whatever. So. <laughs> so that early life, you've obviously mentioned your parents were very godly. So going to church, hearing the Bible, hearing about the Lord Jesus would be nothing new to you. Yeah. But at what point did you actually come to know that you had to trust the Lord Jesus for yourself? Yeah, well, that I suppose that knowledge in itself was a there at a pretty young age, I guess. But and I guess one of those things, and I sort of you might say it's sort of like a disadvantage in a in a Christian Christian home is that you can kind of take these things for granted. You know, and that's, uh, I think, and that's where I appreciated having a godly dad that understood that. For myself, I was kind of, I reached around the age of 15. I can't tell you the exact day that I got saved. I can tell you, show you where and remember the occasion very clearly. But uh, something I want to just talk about in my conversion and, and just something I say to people, just a little word of advice is that, when you get saved, tell others. That's the best thing you can do to establish yourself as a Christian. Because I, I got saved one Sunday afternoon. My cousin was our Sunday school teacher. He was telling us the gospel. I could just see he felt that he was looking at me. It just felt always the focus was on me. Anyway, I'd had many times I'd been convicted about my sin, but just that afternoon, it, it really struck home to me, and I, I went into the find the most secluded place I could and and just shut myself away and cried out to God to save me. And I, I just, for me as an independent sort of a, I suppose, the small man syndrome, <laughs> you want to get through yourself. You want And it's just that independent nature. It was, a, I guess, a real stumbling block for me just to ha reach that point where I just admitted to God that I, I couldn't do anything. I just had to ask him to save me. This little guy needed to be saved. And what a relief. It's the burden off the mind, you know, and, and it's an incredible moment. It's just so good to think back to. But, uh, you know, I walked out of that and the first thing I wanted to do was to tell someone. 
but something happened and uh, I, I got in trouble about something or other and just the opportunity just seemed to slip by and I, and I never actually got around to saying anything about that experience, you know. And it just kept happening that way. I went to tell mum some like a month or two later and something else was happening and it just didn't happen. And it got to sort of like six months later and a dear Scottish brother, Angus Swanson, came visiting us and he asked me. He was having a few gospel meetings and he asked me, are you safe? And I, I'd reached a point where I was doubting so much that I sort of, I just said, I didn't think so. So that was where I got to because I hadn't sort of told anyone. Anyway, my younger brother, Andrew, it was after one Sunday night gospel meeting. He was very troubled about his sin and he was, well, before that, we were mucking around as lads do. And dad just was concerned that we weren't taking the gospel seriously. He just pulled us up, said, you fellas, go to bed, think about what you heard tonight. And that was his simple way of trying to make us think seriously. So anyway, Andrew took that to heart and he was soon asking for help to get saved. And that struck my heart too. And I went outside, got down on my knees under the stars and, and just called out to God about getting right about my sin. And the moment I did that, the moment I told you, just told you about came flooding back in my mind. And I thought, that's it. I am saved. Yeah. And so that same night, we both, I professed to be saved and Andrew got saved. It was a great night. <laughs> and from that moment on, we both confessed the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior at the same time, though I actually got saved about six months earlier. So my simple message is, people, if you get saved, just start talking about it straight away, you know? Yeah. Did it help you to have somebody so close who was a new Christian as well to, you know, a kind of accountability, someone to, to walk alongside with? Yeah, that, that's an interesting side of, of our story. Andy and I are pretty close because our, it was kind of a, seemed to be a distance between us and the group of Christians. There wasn't many our age sort of thing. And so we kind of felt a little bit distant from the main group above us that was sort of like five years gap. At that age, it was a big gap. They were driving cars we weren't, you know, and they were getting around. We sort of were left out of the picture. But as soon as I got my license, we just... I don't know, we kind of sort of made up our minds that we wanted to get to every conference we could to and we wanted to get to every special meeting we could to. And, and that was just like, that seemed to be the, the choice we made that early in our lives from 17 onwards. There's a bit over two years difference between us, but we did thousands of miles trekking the country. Just you'd knock off work, you'd jump in the car and belt off to Brisbane. It's a sort of hour and a half trek to get Tom Bentley special meetings, you know, and you know, a fortnight on the on the tabernacle or whatever, you know, and, and you just made that effort. That was our goal in life. It's it's really been a, a blessing to us to have had that behind us and that real teaching that I guess if you miss out on it, well it's it's not so good. But we really have been a just knocking around together and that's in our younger days we, we had that aim and we got to lots of conferences. We travel overnight up to Innisfail in the north, sort of like eighteen hours away and and it's just, yeah, the fellowship with the small groups of Christians around the country was tremendous. Yeah, just awesome. It's funny when you speak to people from large countries like Canada or Australia or America and the miles they yeah. drive for a meeting or yeah. a weekend. And we in England, yeah. Yeah. you know, you think, should I drive that half an hour? Should I drive that two hours? It's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> 
But that was obviously a yeah. real determination that you had, that you needed fellowship, you needed good Bible teaching, you needed yeah. to grow as a Christian. Yeah. yeah. We we really, we enjoyed that. And like, Dad was a great gospel preacher in the open air and that. And, and like, we'd sort of shoot through to um, assemblies beyond Brisbane and on our way back home, we'd they'd have an open air in the city on a Saturday night. So we'd sort of make the run out to the conference and on our way back, we'd scoot into the city open air and preach our hearts out and then keep on home, you know. So that was a really great experience for us, just a learning ground of just dealing with people and having all sorts of experiences, like all kinds. You, you come across all kinds, you know, and get treated in all kinds of ways. So you learn just to take that on your on the chin and just don't let it ruffle you. And great training ground, just dealing with the public like that and just getting out with the gospel. That actual open air is the beginnings of why we went to New Guinea. And that's a great story in itself, but yeah. Okay. Before we move on to that aspect of your life, how did you make your career choice? Well, it's one of those things, you know, you, you kind of like, you know, with Dad and Mum's example of having the Lord guide you into the right place you should be. Uh, and that's a, a big thing in my life. I've, I've always tried to uh, have a job that I had the weekends free so we could go to the conferences. My first job was in a nursery and that was fine. They didn't work weekends. So a fruit tree nursery, you know, it's just tropical fruits and that. I was four years there. Then I got a job on a local ginger farm, growing ginger for nine and a half years. So love that farm work. That's to me my ideal, the outdoors. Yeah, I just really enjoyed that. And one of the local brothers was managing the farm. So that was good. We had, yeah, there was three of us actually, three or four of us that worked on that farm from the assembly and a few of the ladies as well. So it was a good fellowship thing in that sense. We discussed the scriptures plenty and yeah, that side of it was good. But then the farm got sold and I had to move on and my brother was looking for a rouse about. So he, he had his mechanical business in, locally in town here and he said, oh, look, you know, can't get hand. So I said, all right. Eh? And the, the door seemed to open there and that's where I've been for the last 20 years. And he said, oh, you might as well do your apprenticeship. So I said, yep. Might as well. <laughs> so I love it. I mean, it, I, I don't mind it, the job, but it's just, yeah, the outdoors is my, my preferred environment. But, yeah, so I've, I've, I've loved being a mechanic, and the aspect of that that I really enjoy is the contact with the people. You get to know all the locals, and that's just something that is that is real help in the gospel. It is a real blessing in that sense. Yeah. yeah. You've often got to put in a lot of man hours to then build the contact yeah. and build the trust so that when you speak about your faith, it means something. Sure, sure. Yeah, look, we, we've had other guys that profess to be something, a believer in the Lord Jesus, and uh, they sort of have debts laying around everywhere. They have all kinds of sad situations that they've really, really done bad things for the testimony, and think, man, no, come on, you know, we don't want to be seen associated with that, but and that's pretty sad. But, yeah, it is great to be able to build a reputation in the locality that, yeah, you're there to help people, you're there to do the right thing by them. And then that translates into what you are, what you claim to be as a Christian. Yeah, they can see it and they can see something working out in that sense, you know. And it's nice. I mean, you can't please everyone in the world, but it's always good to be able to just have that general testimony before the Lord and providing things honest in the sight of all men. Yeah. Yeah. And throughout all of this period of time working on the farm and the, being a mechanic, how have you been used in the church context? 
what work have you been involved with? From a very, very young age, I began to try to get involved in speaking in the gospel. Like the open air work was a big thing here. We'd have two or three open airs back in those days. They sort of dwindled quite a lot now, but just little by little started trying to be involved in the teaching and that as you gained confidence and whatever, just all those learning curves, you know, you get through it. <laughs> stumbling first tries and <laughs> yeah you try to encourage the younger ones coming on now and they just say hey look we're there give it a shot it's really really worth it it's just something that you've got to ask the lord and it's just i suppose something that i guess in your heart you've got to um really have that understanding with the lord himself and appreciate what he's promised to be for you in that sense it's not all about us our capabilities are that what he can do in us and through us. You know, I think it's one of the most important things in our lives to arrive at that conclusion and just to be able to depend on him, just be completely reliant on him. And I, and that's what I liked about the spontaneous nature of open air work is that, hey, you've gone flat out through a busy week, every other responsibility you've got to do, and then you just land on it and you just call out to the Lord, Lord, what verse? What verse tonight? You know, and and you step out, and probably often you don't haven't had time to just be have a sermon, but you know, you know, having your heart that understanding that the Lord and He's able just to fill your heart and your mind with the just words to speak, and just wait for that verse that He gives you, and, and you step out in, in faith and confidence. You know, and I think that's to me a little principle in my life that has really helped me in all these circumstances of what I've. Uh, put my hand to in the Lord's work in that sense and yeah, just to be available. Yeah, you try to be prepared, but you just got to be available and realize that no matter how prepared we are or aren't, we can be so prepared but then still fall in the heat. You know what I mean? Yeah. That little principle yeah. of relying on the Lord, I think, is so important. So then we move on to the part of the story, which is what really prompted me to get in touch with you. And that is the work yeah. that you've got involved with in Papua New Guinea. Perhaps you could explain how that work came about. Yeah, well, it, it was actually underway before I was involved in it. How it started was that in the, that open air I was talking about in Brisbane, in the, in the main mall in the city, the brethren there were preaching away, and, and this fellow from Papua New Guinea was uh, studying locally, and he'd come down and come across them preaching in the street, and he said, guys, can, can you bring this message to my people? I said, oh, maybe we can. Because <laughs> there was an immediate contact in that one of the brothers that was attending that open air, he was in real estate and he's in the practice of for 30 odd years of going up, tripping backwards and forwards, put a portfolio together of real estate, he'd take it up there and, and he knew the land, he knew the lay of the land very well. And there was another brother at that time that was in the horticultural, the timber industry anyway, of the... Uh, the forestry. So he was sort of tripping around in different countries, like, and Papua New Guinea was one of those countries that he would go with regard to his work in, in the timber industry. So he immediately, they jumped together and said, all right, let's go. Let's do this, you know, and, and that was just the door that was flung open sort of before them. And they, they stepped through the door. And, and so that, that just started a, uh, the opportunity, opened the door for opportunity. They went to this guy's village and that was where the village I first went to, where the first little assembly was formed there. Now, Alf Grant was the, the brother that he still goes up with us, and he's in his 70s, and 
he's keen as mustard. <laughs> very, very lively guy and thoroughly appreciate him. He's a quiet spoken brother and, and but very much with a heart to just do what he can for the difficult situations in, in their lives and but we just guys that want to do what we can as the opportunity presents itself and have the faith just to take the Lord at his word and rely on him to be able to get us through that and use that opportunity, you know. And so he spoke to me uh one conference down the, down Brisbane and I sort of looked at him and I said, me, you want me to come to New Guinea? I said, okay. <laughs> I said, well, I guess I can do that, you know. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I, I think I can. Yeah. <laughs> so we arranged our first trip, and and that was uh, I tell you, uh, anyone that goes for the first time, it's an incredible culture shock. It's just something else to go into a, an environment where you just no electricity, there's no running waters, no hygiene facilities as such in basically all of the villages. It is just something else. At that time, when you when you landed in there, it was just like you. You walked out of the plane to the terminal and all these dark faces peering to the fence at you and saying, who's this guy, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm the guy in the cage here, you know? And it was kind of a strange feeling, but, yeah, because nothing misses their attention, you know, and you've got to remember that. That's very culturally important, that word of mouth in a country like that is just Bush Telegraph, we call it here, is just incredibly active, <laughs> And, and it's so important just to get an understanding of that culture that they live in. And so, look, yeah, I, I joined the, the trip. So all of my holidays basically were used pretty much on a couple of trips a year, at least to the Papua New Guinea. So in the start, we'd sort of do like a day either side of two weeks. And what we'd do, we'd go basically do a round trip. It's a bit like Samuel's routine round trip. And... Uh, it was a big lot of driving and we did a lot of preaching, visiting lots of marketplaces all along the way. Because you need to understand the, the, the environment in that there's no accessible roads to the tens of thousands of villages through all the mountain ranges. There's no, no roads. You can't drive to their doorsteps. The time it would take to walk to all those, all those villages is just enormous. So logically, the best thing to do is to find their, the places they came down to. And there were regular markets on different days in different areas. So on those market days, you'd come to the, to where they came in the morning, you'd set up and you'd start preaching gospel. Alf and Michael had put together two little uh, speakers with a little hand microphone and that just gave a good projection of the voice. And within minutes, you'd be surrounded by like, Six, eight hundred people. And that in itself is a culture shock. People had sat glued, riveted to you, drinking in the gospel. And whatever literature you could take, they just, just went like you, you could never have enough. And that to us was just like, wow. After preaching in Australia, that was wow. <laughs> Honestly, you know, you, you get the shrug off, get a life mate sort of a comments to you and in Australia and you go to that. And it's just an enormous culture shock. And so, well, why don't I go back? No, and just made you want to keep going and just feed the thirst in a, in a country like that, that, that seems so backward and yet was so, so acceptive of the gospel. And it was just incredible. So excuse my ignorance, but do this, firstly, do they speak English? And secondly, 
is there any religious influence there already before you went with the gospel? Well, again, I've got a brother Dave in Africa. Um, and uh, well, another thing I was involved in, I probably didn't mention this, but there was a brother in New Zealand that um, printed tracts. He had a farm. He printed tracts, put together a printing press, printed millions of tracts. And he was in the practice. He had a, used us as an agent, another brother previous to me in Australia here, to be his agent to distribute as the postage was cheaper. So I, for many years, have, um, it's only just finished last year that been distributing those tracts and I'd send a lot to Africa. When I went to New Guinea and addresses, the names of the churches, the names of the whatever on those places in Africa was just incredible. Every imaginable name of a church you'd had, <laughs> you could find it there. Same thing when I got to New Guinea, I thought you're driving the road and think there's this church of such and such and churches of such and such, along with all the regular JW Mormons, every other religion uh, as, as Seventh-day Adventists and Roman Catholics, they all had a, a big foothold in, in that country. And incredibly, just a, a couple of years ago, I read an article in one of the local papers about what the Prime Minister had done. They had a, in Parliament House, had a big totem pole with their um, carvings that they would do normally in their villages. And he had taken down a certain amount of that and said, look, now we need to put something here that more represents our country. And he put an open Bible with a flame on top of it representing the scriptures and the spirit of God, saying that we are basically a Christian country. And they claim to be a 98% Christian country. So they wouldn't really tolerate their Muslim neighbor coming into them in Indonesia. So that's kind of a, a just to give a general feel for how they, they would view Christianity as being their main home religion in their country. As far as the language goes, uh, that that is just the most difficult part about the work in Papua New Guinea. There are like 800 plus individual languages throughout the country in the villages, the different end. Uh, so you can understand, you say, which language do I learn? Do I just go to one little spot and just make that my home? There's not really a need for that. And that's why I think what we focused on was not so much learning the language. Though Alfie knew quite a bit of pidgin. He could basically preach in pidgin well enough just to give a basic gospel message. But pidgin covered a vast majority of like the cities, the main towns and that. But where the, the next second little assembly was formed, that we had ones there that they were illiterate, so they only knew their la- native language. Some knew pidgin, but some of the older ladies only knew their native language where they were there. So there were Bibles printed in their language, and we tried to go down that path, but the problem is it's very basic. Even in the pidgin, they don't have words for like Lenny Walker was up there with us one time and he was reading First Corinthians 11, teaching about the hair of the sister and just reading the passage. As the brother read the passage through, he said, now, in, in Pigeon, the phrase went, you cut on grass. I said, what was that? <laughs> Talking about cutting the hair to be shorn or shaven or whatever, you know. Um, but that's how they expressed it in Pigeon, you cut on grass. They don't have actually a word for hair. So... And that's just a simple one. So the equivalent was like, 
okay, there's something, many stalks growing, you cut it back. So that's how it, how they express it. So do you imagine trying to express the words of the Bible in a lamb language that's simplistic? You end up with something twice as thick as we have and twice as many words in John 3.16 is what we have. We couldn't sing 25 words in John 3.16. <laughs> so, and when we come to the to getting the Bibles in their own language, particular dialect, we got them, but again, it still didn't, it was difficult to present the truth. The thing to pray about is finding suitable supply Bibles in pidgin language. They are available, but it sort of fluctuates, comes and goes as to availability. There is a printing group up in there. I think the Baptists do that in a nearby town. But yeah, that, that is a, has been an issue. But to be able to get the scriptures to those that are, are illiterate is the, the other thing that's really been a problem to me. I've since discovered a, a young guy that lives on the coast here and Matt, a guy that's just recently got saved here, one of Andrew's contacts. And he's just recently been received into the Assembly Fellowship Croy here. And he's one of his friends actually does on a little SD card, Pigeon Bible and some other songs or whatever, something that can be plugged into a phone even. I'm hoping to get a hold of some of those and help out. Phones, they're just getting to smartphones now. They're just the old bricks are pretty much the norm. <laughs> Amazingly, mobile coverage is fairly good across the country. So that's one thing they've focused on rather than landlines. There's huge problems with earthquakes and all these kinds of things up there that make landlines nearly impossible. So communication issues, yeah. If I remember correctly, on your last few visits, you were building a sure. church. Yeah. Well, I wasn't involved with the very first of the buildings that were put up. The, the brothers in Conference Hall, Alfie and a few of the others, put up the first one that was ever done there. We actually didn't go looking for other assemblies or other works that had been to join into that work. We just thought, well, this guy's asked us to come to his village. We just thought, we'll just leave it that way. We'll just let the Lord lead us into whatever direction we go. So that little assembly was formed in Yalaboo, um, just not out, not far out of Mount Hagen, about an hour and a half drive. Um, that's where the first assembly building was, was built. And that was, out of good sawn timbers and steel roofing and iron for the sides. Nice little building. At that time, we were sort of doing that round trip thing. Our translator, Albert, was onto us, onto us saying, look, come to my village, come to my village. And, um, that was like six hours drive further up. So we thought about that, prayed about that. We sort of reached a point where we're not actually established too much doing this big round trip every time, you know? And it just, the Lord laid on our heart that, hey, we need to maybe start focusing on individual areas. So that's when we moved up to the next place of interest where our translator came from, his family tribal area was. So that was Coroba Valley. So that was um, a really interesting step. His father was the local chief of that area. So we had the meetings in his hut, just outside his hut. Um, and so once a few of the few people had got saved and and there was a, a little group beginning to gather there we could see that they really needed somewhere to to gather as a local assembly as a group and be able to have functions and and just be together as as believers so our first breaking of bread was sitting on logs 
in that little opening outside the front door of the, the old man's, the chief's hut. And it was just amazing. The best time of my life. The most amazing experience in my Christian experience was that moment. We sat under those trees and with those simple believers, trouble communicating, um, translating our prayers at the Lord's Supper. Incredible moment. You tried to impress their hearts that you don't need a building to remember the Lord. Some of them seemed to have the idea they wanted to wait to join the fellowship until the building was put up and just appreciate the simplicity of this, you know? And that to me was the most precious moment, those first couple of days that we just broke bread, remember the Lord for the first time under the trees there. It was just, just incredible. So in that spot, we thought, well, <laughs> we've taken them some magazines like Precious Truth or Present Truth or whatever and Precious Seed and that. And they saw these lovely American churches, brick buildings with big awnings and <laughs> drive through driveways and, oh, can we build one like that? <laughs> we said, oh, but look, no. That would look strange in the jungle, you know? It, it's just not appropriate to have a building like that just here. We want to just build a building that fits in with how you would normally do your life, you know? Uh, so that first time there, we wanted them to just get the timber, cut the, the logs from the jungle, we'd put it up and get iron for the roof and just do it fairly simplistically and get them to, to weave their, their walls to try and contribute themselves to the work help them to understand there's a cost we can all be involved in all these basic principles to do with the lord's work that everyone has a job to do and we just try to impress them and no one's getting paid here we're actually putting our hand in our pocket to be here so we're not going to be paying people to come to do the job because <laughs> that's a big thing in that country being a whitey in that environment they just see dollar signs that's one of the biggest plagues honestly is just to try and get them to understand you're not here to spread money We'd be having a chat with the local believers down one of the marketplaces. We'd just meet up with them and you would see these guys just hanging around and, and then they'd come over to us and talk, say, hey, can you come and, come and build a church over here for us? And you'd come and do, wait up, you know? <laughs> We're just doing our bit for the Lord. You do your bit for the Lord. And what we've got to work with, we'll all work with it. But we're not bringing millions of dollars here. Don't see that in us. We're just serving the Lord here, just like you are. And that was hard. That was our skin color problem. Yeah. I know that when I went to Angola with my missionary friends, one of the lessons they had to learn was that handouts are one of the worst things you can do because there's that expectation already there. The white man will give. And to actually teach that we will help and we will work alongside and we will build. But we will give you what you need, but you earn it and you work for it. And it's a it's a yeah. difficult barrier to get across. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You can you appreciate that definitely, yeah. When we built that first building, it was a, quite a scenario. <laughs> we went and we'd sort of been in contact as, as best we could on phone calls and that and said, look, now, guys, go out in the jungle, get some poles, get the timber ready. So when we get there, we won't, won't have much time. We'll get into it and do it. Well, on the way, we were held up with airline strikes and so we were sort of chafing at the bit, but <laughs> we were put up in a five-star hotel and, <laughs> and we said, oh, well, we didn't ask for this, but I suppose, Lord, we need a rest. <laughs> so we had to wait till the next day to get the next flight up and all these hold-ups, we just sort of, we're not going to get this done. No, we were talking to some white fellas there from the mines and they said, guys, 
things don't happen like that in New Guinea. They don't happen in two weeks, you know. So it was one of those things. Well, no, the Lord's the Lord's on our side. So we got there and we said, "Well, guys, where's where's the timber? Let's let's have a look at the timber." So oh, it's long up, long up there. So we okay, let's go for a walk. Okay. <laughs> Went up in the bush and they brought us to a cleared garden patch. You now you could see it was just trees that had been fallen down, some three or four foot two through, you know, and I said, well, this has some timber, we can cut this. Guys, no, we don't have a sawmill. <laughs> we have a little chainsaw. <laughs> so we said, okay, so there's no timber. Was, well, you know, okay, guys, let's go. And we said, where can we go and cut timber? You you provide us with some timber that you can get uh, because we can't buy it. You, you need to supply us with some timber. Uh, just to help them appreciate some of the, their responsibility. Uh, because the thing was you had to guard really well against is that you'd make some arrangement and at the end of the deal, they would turn around and say, well, you'd be handed a bill from some random local saying, well, that's my timber, you owe me this much money. So, And the figure would get so big that it would become just really you know, out of your, your league. So we made it very clear it was timber cut off of the chief's land or some uncle close to the chief. So uh, we would spend the first few days in the in the jungle cutting logs, carrying them out. And that was quite an experience. <laughs> oh, dear. We were glad to have another jungle man from South America, Vince, helping us. He'd had some experience in jungle building. And so that was quite a rough a rough building. It was basically a roof over their head. And when we left, that's what it was. Rough, sawn timbers joined together. We knew it would stand up. We knew it would shelter them, give them plenty of room to, to meet under, a dry place to meet. And that was a fairly, fairly rough start to the building side of things. And it was a bit of a thing to try and get them encouraged to put the finishing touches to it, you know, and the Lord was good after the big earthquake there. The government stepped in and, and relief agencies stepped into it and they said, look, for public um, meeting places like this, they provided a tank, plumbing to it, they provided concrete, mesh, everything to set it all up, all the taps, everything you needed. So we said, all right, guys, let's do this. But we had to do it in a certain time. And if we did that, they would supply with more, like a flushing toilet and a few other things to complement it all. So we got in. And we made good use of that, and they got really motivated. And next morning they had a slab down, and we could set the tank up for them. So that was great. That that helped on that project very well. Yeah, there's they did a lot more to it as well. So the next building project we did was just uh, a start of last year. Very sudden, sort of. I hadn't been able to go in the November trip. Just it didn't. I got caught out with work and stuff like that, and it just didn't work out for me. So. Alfie, when he came back in this new area that some of the believers had been working and preaching the gospel and working amongst family and, and friends there, that there had been a number that had got saved and a few had come to them and were meeting with them. And they could see the need for a, a building to be constructed there too. So we they had a, a huge tree on site on this patch of land that they were able to use. And they'd got that cut down. They got it sawn up into what they thought was usable sizes. So I said, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Anyway, I couldn't make it that trip to see what was there. The others came back, uh, Williams and Alf. So Alfie had it on his heart. He said, look, 
like you said, I, I, I really would love to get back as soon as possible and help them start building that building. I said, well, look, I don't know how we're going to work this, but I can only put it to them. We've had guys going to TAFE and stuff from work, so it was pretty tight. I said, look, I think we can get 10 days and we'll just get our flights sorted. And he went to work with his travel agent and and we got it. It just fitted in that slot. Right, right, just, I think we got three weeks before COVID started. So we were on the plane. I got together some battery tools, a little hand saw, battery off a Milwaukee gear, chainsaw, all the battery stuff I could and a few impact driver on that. And we thought, let's go and see what we can, see what's there and see what we can do. And I'm not a builder. <laughs> I'm a mechanic, right? And I really haven't built too much. And uh, one of the young guys come to me that was helping us and he said, he said, Mark, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a builder. So I said, no, nor am I. <laughs> so let's do what we can get. Eh? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it, it was a real challenge because I said, I looked at the length of the timbers they'd cut. I said, look, one of the major problems is planning. They don't think about tomorrow. They don't think about what it might need to be. They'll say like a six by nine, that'd be a nice building. And so I think, well, it'd be nice to have seven by nine or seven by 15, actually. And, <laughs> and so the building grows and I end up having to say to them, look, guys, you, you've cut us the timber to a size that will only allow us to build at the very extreme a seven by 15. Okay. So I said, look, I, I can redesign to a point where I think we can stretch it, the hip of the roof and everything. And I said, but look, from that point on, that's it. We can't go anymore. How is the project doing just now? Okay, so we got to put together, did a, a like a proper frame, tried to do more like a proper frame with a, a concrete footing. So when we left it, we had the roof on and one side screwed off. And we said, look, you guys can finish the screwing off and, and we'll work on getting some sheeting done around the walls. Basically gave them instructions as to how to go about that and left enough gear there so that they could get into that. And we organised the tank for them to set up and tried to arrange where to put it so that they have a tendency to, to put it in one spot and then two weeks later they'll pull it down and put it over here. I said, well, no, no wait up. <laughs> I had one main brother saying, well, yeah, no, the tank's going here, the tank's going here, right near the front door. And I thought, now, wait up, have you talked about that to the other guys? You know, because we need to put it in one spot and leave it there. Okay, so uh, I think the tank is in the right spot. <laughs> We're itching to get back there. That's what we really want to get back to see how that project has has wound up. Apparently, they've finished off the walls and they were planning on concreting the floor inside. We're hoping that's happening and. The bush telegraph is really hard, like with logs. <laughs> we're not sure what we're hearing is translating into what's happening. <laughs> so it's, yeah, the pigeon English isn't translating into pure English very well. <laughs> there were a couple of very keen guys amongst them. That young guy that was, he was a actually welder, a fabricator, and he, he picked up some nice tips that I was passing on to him uh, in the building process. They were keen as musters to grab hold of the, the electric saw and all this, give it all a go. And I, so I, I, while I was there, I let them do it and try to show them how to do it properly and 
it's pointless leaving gear and then letting them wreck it and not have any idea once you leave, you know. So yeah, it was good just to be able to help them get the hang of it. They're well able to keep that project going, and they made a room at the back of the hall, maybe for living quarters for someone to stay there to keep it safe and for visitors that come. So when you when your brothers visit, you can you can stay here, you know. That'd be good. You know, I mean, it's it's really hard to find really good accommodation. Accommodation is really expensive. It's just something that just has been a real cure over the years. It'll cost us like, you know, 11 grand a trip because of the fact that we had to take the best accommodation that was available simply for hygiene's sake so we didn't pick up the worst diseases and getting around. Honestly, it's just, you just had to, in that environment, look after your health because as it was even, we got the old tummy bugs and that sort of thing as a regular occurrence. You just took it in your stride, but you just couldn't afford to pick up the nasty diseases, you know, because they're abundant. It's just on every hand. You're walking down the street in the worst filth you can imagine. They've started to hose their concrete in the streets now. And that's been, it's tremendous to see that change. But yeah, in the early days, the reality of disease was just very real. So we had to take Good accommodation, and it wasn't cheap because they fitted it for a whitey that they thought had plenty of dollars. Yeah. So they upped the price to get good accommodation. What were the biggest issues you faced in your time in Papua New Guinea? And also, what were the encouragements, maybe any other than what you've mentioned already? Yeah, it is really so important to know the local culture. Yeah, just for safety, that kind of thing. It's one of those things you, you know, you trust the Lord, but you don't, you don't want to tempt God in that sense. We just made it a practice not to drive at night because that's becomes very dangerous as far as holdups, ambush, that sort of thing on the roads. We've had a few occasions like that. Alfie has had quite a few more in the <clears throat> day before I was there, but plenty of stories and those kind of things. But that is probably one of the biggest things is just knowing more or less an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of a thing. The payback system in their culture is pretty serious. We've driven down the roads and you, you kind of get nervous if you didn't understand the culture because they're all in their war paint, all in carrying big shotguns, bows and arrows and just big line of them. But you can quite safely drive past them and they'll sort of acknowledge you and no problem. But they off getting a particular person for a payback, someone that's done them wrong or stolen a pig or something. And, yeah, you don't get involved in – and you make sure you don't do them wrong. <laughs> Drive carefully and, like, I guess the challenges of driving in the country are another thing too. The first time I was there, one of the first times doing the trip from the roads is just, like, incredibly rough drive in and out of the holes and it's just like yeah really really washed out and windy steep dangerous yeah it's just really a mission to, to move around and we'd hire a vehicle but in a troop carrier you get thrown around just you feel like you've done a day's work just to just to be a passenger by the time you get to your destination so the travel side of it is is hard and just knowing how to go about that is that's another one of the sort of things that is just difficult. We don't have a vehicle there as yet. We'd like to put one together uh, that we can leave there somewhere. We we stay at the, the Baptist Missionary Home in, in Mount Hagen, 
and he has offered kindly to keep a vehicle at his place. So there is there is opportunities opening in that area. Just to get it all to work out, it'll be a very helpful not to have to hire a vehicle because that's, again, one of the most expensive aspects of the work, having to hire a vehicle and the prices they charge is just crazy. The risk side of it is, is just you can overcome it. Though one, one instance, you just get caught out. We come through a spot that we thought was safe, just near where we normally would have would have stayed in an open area. We come up around the heading home. We knew there, was, there could be trouble further up the road, but they put a log across the road. So we thought, slowed down a bit and approached slowly. We could see a couple of guys a couple of hundred, hundred metres further on with guns and stuff. And we thought, well, we'll just sometimes you talk your way through it and offer them something and they'll let you go. But we were just approaching the logs and they had the corner of our eye. We saw these few guys running through the kunai grass with their bush knives and that. Obviously not wanting to talk, just wanting to, um, yeah, be a problem. So I just was driving at a time. I just ripped in and did a quick three-point turn as quick as I could. And Alfie, we both just agreed on the spur of the moment, no, we're good out of here this time. We won't stop and talk. And they took a swipe at the vehicle just and busted one of the back glasses and threw a few rocks at us. But we, we escaped okay. That was fine. And um, we got a police escort to get back through to Mount Hagen. But it's just one of those things that it's there all the time. But you have to trust the Lord and you just keep moving on through those situations and don't let it discourage you. There's opposition from some of the, the religious leaders. They don't like to see their box feel that they're being probably at risk of losing their sheep. And that has caused us big problems. It's, it's been quite a, an issue at one point there, but we just come out of that the wiser. Yeah, everyday stuff, but it takes a different scale up there, I suppose, with that background of, of an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. If, you, if you've stolen a sheep from their church, it just becomes such a drama that you, it costs a lot of money if you're not careful, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. just one of those things that you've got to be aware of, all those things that they see as a loophole and a means of, of getting money from you. So there are those angles of the work. Encouragement is just just hearing. When you, when you go out to preach, you preach the gospel and the response of the people to the truth and to realize that the word of God in itself is just an incredible power. We've had in one village, I, I just for an example, the, the chief stood up after we finished preaching. He said, "Well, brothers, this is it. That we have heard the word of the word of God to us today. It has not been spoken to us like this before. So, what are we going to do?" And that was his response to several hundred men sitting around him from that village, his village there, and. Uh, to me, it was just incredible, you know, and, and so many stories of ones that have got saved that we go into the schools there. We try to make a point of going into the secondary school. We get to preach to student rolls sort of between 1,000 and 1,200. If we can get to the right time before the holidays start, we can get the most of those to preach to and distribute literature to them. Thankfully, they're, they're teaching school now. It's turning to 100% English all the way through the grades now. It used to be just a secondary school. So that made it really easy, a real breath of fresh air just to be able to preach your heart out in English <laughs> and know that they were understanding you to this to this group, you know. And look, 
preaching by translation is fine. And I guess the Lord prepares you for these things. I was in Malaysia when I first did it, and I was I stood up in this little assembly there, and next thing a brother stood beside me. I thought, hey, have I done something wrong? Or is this, <laughs> is this protocol? Is this norm? And I started proceeding. Nothing was said. I started to, to go on with the message, and next thing he's starting to talk. Oh, no. I see what's going on here. <laughs> and he was preaching in Mandarin for the, some, a family that was coming along. Well, right, I'm in the deep end here. <laughs> so that was my first experience. But obviously I needed it. I needed to learn to do that. So that was something was, I did in Venezuela twice, two visits to Brother Paul over there. And, and since it's just become second nature in a, in a sense, just learning to preach by translation. So that sort of prepared me for, going to New Guinea as well. So, yeah, it's little things that happen along the way that you realise the Lord's sort of getting you ready for the job. Yeah. What would be some prayer points for anybody listening along who has a, a newfound interest in Papua New Guinea? Probably, yeah, it is quite an issue with their health-related things, um, but I, I don't know what kind of answers you can give in, in that sense So. Health is a real problem. We've we've had to deal help a few people get treatment for some quite like there's AIDS and there's and then through unfortunate circumstances some of them actually contract it, you know, and and there's tuberculosis and all these kinds of diseases that are there. Um, I guess really it's the just I suppose it's just supplying the need of places to meet as well as well as the what I mentioned in the in the literature and and just how to how to actually meet that need of illiterate people. It's not like giving them an Emmaus course. It's kind of difficult when there's not a lot available in Pigeon, one of those difficult countries. It's not your everyday languages that we're dealing with. So that kind of a thing is difficult to know, and that's why it's it's so good to get uh, the locals take the message to their actual local remote areas, you know. I think that's the way the work really has to progress there. Do you think the school work's important in the sense that if you teach them the gospel in English, they then can evangelize to the future generation? Definitely. Now, that's that's something that Alf has tried to focus on is helping a few of the promising young men that have become Christians among the students and that have been, some of them joined the assembly. They're studying, they're going doing university now a couple of them he's just helped them with laptop or you know things that they need to study with and to get them through and support with some of their scholarships and just things like that to have men to interpret local men to interpret and just those kinds of areas of of the work that are really important you know and and hasn't always worked right ones who've tried to help have let us down it's it's kind of one of those things but to pray that the lord will keep available men that can translate and are willing to apply themselves in that. We've we've been really blessed with Albert. He's had it on his heart a conviction to to be in the Lord's work and to be a servant of the Lord, you know. He went and studied before we really had a lot to do with him in a Bible college thing that really, you know, he's learned a lot of the scriptures and so it's that's that's really good. But he's not always there. He's not always available. He has a family. So and we understand that and he gets sick. But just the, the need of a vehicle and a need of accommodation for the work is really important. That's something that we'd really like to get sorted. Uh, we've tried several different avenues. We're happy to rough it, but it, it's just you've got to have water supply. When you're out in the jungle, you've got to have a, 
And we've learned that you can trust the locals. There was when we were doing that first building, one of the old ladies, the older sisters there, she went off and come back with these long bamboo sticks with a bamboo leaf jammed in the end of it and said, Here, have a drink. You know, I thought, Do I, don't I? You know, and <laughs> had a drink of this water and fine, perfectly fine. They, they know where the good water is. So that's good. And you can trust local knowledge as much as your stomach doesn't want to. <laughs> Those sort of things for, for people that go up to visit, just for general safety too. Because to, to have a vehicle is one thing, but to have a safe place to park is another thing. It's been a blessing to be on the chief's land because the respect for the local chief is is up there and, and they do acknowledge that. And if you're to leave your your vehicle parked anywhere available to the public, you'd come back with no wheels and no spare tyre and whatever was possible taken off it, you know what I mean? So that kind of aspect of the work is difficult, just to know how to go about all that because, and that's why we've always tried to get secure parking. Yeah, it's you, there's one road to home and you've got to take it. <laughs> And you get a, a roadblock, or you get and you or you get a flat tire, and you don't have a spare. You, you're stuck yeah. in pretty serious circumstances. So you try to be safe, you try to do it properly. Sometimes it's a real challenge to get through. Yeah. Which Bible verse or passage have you found to help? Whether that's early in your Christian life, or as you've gone and done work abroad in Papua New Guinea, which verse has really stood out? Dan, I think probably one of the most important verses to me was Jeremiah 17. I'm just trying to think of what verse it is now. Let me see. Give me half a sec. I'll look it up. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so the Lord gave me a verse that um, was a real strength that has just confirmed to my heart that he wanted me to just keep doing what I could do, you know? And so Jeremiah 17, it, it, verse 5 on, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, and, his, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. And so on. And then it goes on in verse 7, is the verse that really just confirmed to me that the Lord was with, with us. He's always with us. No matter how difficult our circumstances get, no matter what it is, he, he can make it a fruitful situation, you know. And he said just this, that blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green and shall not be careful in the year of drought. And this last phrase just struck me, and shall not cease from yielding fruit. And the Lord just said to me, Michael, just, just do what you can for me. Just keep doing it. No matter what comes, just keep doing it. And that's what I've tried to do. That's what I've tried to make my aim in life is you try to be ready for the opportunities that the Lord opens, the doors that he throws open in front of you. You know, and just say, well, Lord, here I am. I, I want to step through this, you know. And just having the confidence in your heart that the Lord can make it fruitful. Yeah, that's just the most valuable thing is knowing the Lord and 
believing your knowledge of the Lord to be true. Yeah, to doubt the Lord is just, it, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> you just, you've got to take that step, no matter how, how scared you feel, no matter how difficult the thing looks at. And when you do that, willing to do that, the Lord steps in there. Now, it's interesting, you know, I had this exact same experience. Matt was just, the young guy I was telling you about, has just joined the, brought him to a assembly fellowship and he was just, he prayed. We, we, we got together for our midweek prayer meeting for the first time since COVID last, this past Wednesday and he got up and prayed. He was telling us at the end, just for the encouragement for the other, other young guys, he said, look guys, he said, I was shaken like a leaf. I was nervous as a bag of cats. He said, I just, I just, didn't know how I was even going to do this. He said, he said, but when I got up, he said, it, it was all okay then. He said, I just, I just got, the rest of the meeting was a breeze. He said, I just got the calm, the peace of the Lord. He said, and that was just, I had the exact same experience in, in the deepest, darkest moments of my experience. The last thing I felt like doing was praying and praying. But I knew in my heart, that's what God wanted to hear from me. And it was only when I stood up and prayed that I just got the peace of God. And that to me was one of those little precious moments in your life that God proves himself to you. He shows that he's there and it, and it just helps you then. When the moments get tough, you could take that step and know that it's all going to be okay. No matter what comes out, what the Lord allows in that step. And it's been a real strength to me to just to have those little experiences. And preaching in the open air. One day was just preaching away. This man come yelling down the far end of the street. I thought, oh, no, what's going to happen here? I kept preaching. I preached the heart. I just kept quoting the word of God. And that guy, as he come along the street, he just got quieter and quieter until when he got to me, he stood there and he listened. I just thought, wow, power that's in the gospel. That was another lesson to me. Wasn't about me being big and strong and tall and and <laughs> causing the bag off. That man was hearing the gospel. That's what he was hearing. And I just that is just those little strengthening moments in your experience that you learn to trust the gospel he's given you, the God of the gospel, and just it all just comes together. The thing that he's wanting is for us just to say, well, look, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to trust you that. I will step out. I will take that step. No matter how awkward I feel, I still feel awkward. I'm, I'm, I'm not a people's person as far as making conversation goes. That's the hardest thing for me to do. I go to the open street and it's just the meeting people is just like a, oh, until it, I take that step. That's okay. <laughs> and it's just like, ugh. And I say, well, Lord, you've given me this opportunity. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that step. And that's where he, he, he takes over. He, he just steps in and, and goes with you then, you know. And that's individually, I just say to people, take the step, take the step. And the Lord, the Lord gives you an opportunity. Take those steps and you'll never regret it. You look back on those experiences and just, it'll be such a thrill to you to experience the Lord in that way, you know, in your life and just the things that he can do. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael, for sharing your story. That's been so helpful. Yeah. It's a simple, it's simple, but it's, you know, I, I just trust that someone else can just be encouraged, you know, and, and just realize that 
you might think life's going to pieces, but look at all things work together for good to them that love God. That That is a little principle in your, that we have to keep in our minds, that things happen, they, they look bad, and they look, they're lessons for us, and they're shaping us. It's like the Lord's got us that lump of clay that he's forming. Hey, yeah. You know, it's just reminding your heart that you're in the potter's house, and he's shaping you for some purpose. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Testimony. If you have any suggestions as to who would make a good interview, then please get in touch at testimonypodcast at outlook.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you. Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.